Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. A few months ago, my family and I, plus about 20,000 other people, went to see a live comedy event. What made it so unusual was that none of the 20,000 of us had our smart devices available. Instead, those devices were locked away in magnetic pouches required by the venue. The result? Well, we and everyone we talked to agreed that the tech-free show was a superior experience. Simply put, we connected better with the comedian who we had paid to see and felt less distracted by cameras and the lights of the smart devices we had not paid to see. On the drive home, I decided to get in touch with the CEO of the company to have a conversation about the psychology behind the product. That CEO, who is named Graham Degoni, was happy to meet and gave a great interview, as you'll hear. His company called Yonder has been gaining popularity at live events with both the attendees and the artists alike. It's even being used successfully at schools to the benefit of teachers and students. Yonder's motto, be here now, is on point and may even be a tip of the hat to the brilliant thinking of Ram Das. Graham is very philosophical and thoughtful, and we talk about how he came up with the idea for Yonder, as well as the costs that unwanted technology has had on our attention spans. So listen in as Graham and I have a lively conversation about our attention and how to temporarily shut down unwanted technology. Graham Dagoni, welcome to Super Psyched. Oh, thank you for having me. It's so great. And as I was telling you offline, I recently took my family to go see John Mulaney and it was at a very large venue, the SAP Center in San Jose, huge, probably in front of 18,000 people. And he killed. And the only thing that was nearly as good as John Mulaney and probably actually as good and certainly something that made the experience far more memorable was the fact that we didn't have our cell phones out. And lo and behold, we were using your product, Yonder, which conceals for a period of time our technology, which is, of course, an asset and a tool. But sometimes these assets and tools may actually obstruct a whole host of things that we'll be talking about. So I was just wondering if you could share a little bit about how you came about creating Yonder. What is it? How did you come about creating it? It's a a long story in a way, I guess it's there's a simple way to put it and a more of my interests that, that form the backdrop. But at a simple level, it's the concept is the idea of phone-free spaces. And that means in modern society. I'm interested in sociology, I guess, and philosophy of technology has been kind of what I've been interested in the last 10 or so years. And just looking at the emergence of the smartphone and the internet and how that's going to play out is kind of was my jumping off point, I guess. So that was what I was interested in. I never planned to start a business. That wasn't never on my mind. I didn't have any background in business. It kind of grew out of what I was interested in and what I was reading at the time. So that's where it started. And then I moved into the practical 
application, I guess. So Graham, obviously having a thought, we've all had thoughts. Many of us have had even million dollar ideas that we've never put into action. And yet you did. It went from a thought into a real thing. Who were the thinkers and how did you come about actually saying, you know what, I'm going to go for it? I started out reading a lot of existentialist stuff. So I was reading people like Rollo May and people like that, who I found really fascinating. And I kind of came to that, I guess, through music, through jazz, people like Bill Evans and Keith Jarrett. That was my introduction. And then I kind of just followed the thread and everyone I read, I found more interesting people that were attached to them. So I moved from reading a lot of existentialist stuff. I was interested in postmodern stuff, which is very applicable now. Then I got really interested in William James for a long time. I read all his stuff. That kind of led on to people like Heidegger and Kierkegaard and more modern people like Marshall McLuhan. And then, and then eventually when I moved out to San Francisco, I was reading uh, Hubert Dreyfus's stuff. Hubert Dreyfus was a professor of philosophy out at UC Berkeley and passed away several years ago. But I just out of the blue hit him up and started and I would go and meet with him. And he was Kierkegaard scholar, but he had also written a book maybe in the 70s or maybe even earlier. He wrote a book called What Computers Can't Do. And it was kind of an indictment of artificial intelligence and a lot of the thinking about where that was going, but grounded in a Kierkegaard view of the world, which I found just fascinating. So I started talking with him and then I reached out to a professor of philosophy at uh, Montana, Albert Borgman, who wrote an amazing book called Technology and the Character of Contemporary Life. So I started just interacting with these types of people. And when I hit the point where I felt like I understood enough about the equation and how it applied to modern context, then it was just a decision whether to keep doing that and be more of an academic person or whether I thought I could put it into action and be that kind of go that way. And that's where the split kind of occurred, I guess. And we'll get into the thinkers in a second. But one of the things that is so fascinating to me in particular about Yonder is Usually when we make a technological advancement, it's akin to us squeezing the toothpaste tube and trying to get the toothpaste back in the tube. And in this case, you're saying, hey, listen, I like tech. You've told me that behind the scenes. And I also want for people to experience something while they're there. And many people tend to underestimate the alluring power of these shiny devices that work so much on our psychology, our fear of missing out. And meanwhile, you're looking to great thinkers like Kierkegaard and Rollo May from a host of different areas and saying, you know what, I'm going to make this into a business. And this will be my way of contributing to something more elemental about being human, be us being able to be here now, as it says on your website. And as Ram Das titled his book so brilliantly that we want to be here and we want to be here now. What phrase or was there a particularly powerful phrase or an experience that caused you to say, you know what, we're doing this? Well, there were a bunch. I think some of them were related to practical issues, like just observing people's the lack of privacy, the public sphere, things like that. Also, probably some of my experience with just looking at being in San Francisco, seeing the whole startup world. My basic observation was that everyone was innovating, I thought, in kind of an alleyway, thinking of everything going on now is kind of in the name of efficiency. And that all makes sense in a mechanical way. But when you apply that idea to human interaction and social development, it doesn't really make any sense. It definitely doesn't make any sense when you apply it to the idea of meaning and what it means to have meaning in your life. The idea of making things faster and more efficient when you apply it to hiking or biking or skiing, it doesn't even make sense. 
And so I was looking around, I think, at a lot of these engineers and people in Silicon Valley who are structuring social networks and things to, for interaction. It was a lot of silliness from my perspective. So that was one, I guess, is trying to figure out how do you carve out space for these things that in order to flourish require an absence of technology? Because it's interesting to me now in like, I guess, in the lexicon and the way people think that there's this idea of limitlessness and that the more things, the more options, the better. And I don't really see that mirrored anywhere in life. I, I think limits and form are inherent in everything. I guess my view of technology is anytime something new comes along, life is already full. So it replaces something else. When you look at what phones have done or the internet has done, the question to ask is what has it replaced? Storytelling, human interaction, physical contact. These are all things that are pretty foundational to social interaction, civil society, stuff like that. So that's kind of one way to look at it, I guess. And that's kind of how I approach it. No one can put the genie back in the bottle with technology, but I think people are becoming more and more aware that a lot of the things being tried out right now through social media, stuff like that, they're not tried and true. They're kind of experimental. And we're seeing some of the downsides of that now. Absolutely. And I'm just thinking about like, as you're saying, more is not necessarily better. Essentially, I'm just thinking about if you're hiking through the Grand Canyon and suddenly the park rangers at the Grand Canyon decided to somehow put in speakers and channel out music and put some aromatherapy to it and get rid of all of the natural beauty of the thing, we would cease to feel awe. We'd cease to be present. We'd cease to actually be in relationship with the Grand Canyon at that moment. We'd be distracted by other man-made items. And you're coming along and solving that so beautifully. I'm guessing that when people show up at a concert, not everyone is thrilled to part with their phone. What are some of the initial, perhaps initial negative responses you get, as well as sometimes the feelings that they come around to thinking, oh my gosh, that was a much better experience. Can you describe the process of the end user from where you sit? Well, the first thing I'd say is that the vast majority of people, they like the idea. And that's something that I've heard for a long time. People be like, ah, people must be upset from being on the ground at so many, talking to so many people. The average person understands that there's something out of whack and they're very open to the idea <laughs> they approached. That's the first thing I would say. But of course, you're going to have a certain amount of people who are not happy about it. And, but the good thing is when we explain to somebody how it works, that they keep their phone on them the whole time that they can go use it if they need to in a phone use area. That gets rid of 99% of people's angst about going to a show that's going to be phone-free. And a lot of the time we we'll hear from those people is they'll put up a little bit of a stink, they'll go to the show, and then as they come out, they'll say, that was amazing. I haven't had two hours without my phone and I can't remember when. Or someone will go to turn off their phone and they don't know how to do it because they've actually never done it. Wow, so, that's amazing. That happened it's been on. So that's our goal, though, is just to give people a little sliver of time where they can um, reflect on what their relationship is with technology on their own terms. It's nobody's job to tell someone how to think. But to open up a way, especially for a younger generation that's never experienced life without a computer in their pocket, to open up a way for them to experience that there are many ways to walk through the world. And one mediated by screens is a different experience. It comes with baggage. And I'm thinking about not just the end user being the person who's putting away their phone during a concert for which they paid good money and 
presumably to be there and to experience the concert or the comedic performance or whatever it might be, even school. And we'll talk about some of the other applications of Yonder in a little bit. But let's talk about the other impacted party, and that would be the entertainer. I've been told that Beyonce has been on stage just surrounded by phones and people taking pictures and her saying, guys, I'm right here. You don't need to look at me through your phone. I'm right here. And I'm wondering, and I don't know if that's an apocryphal story or not, but regardless, I can only imagine that the artist, the performer benefits immeasurably from seeing the audience look at them. Can you talk about that? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the one perspective I don't have at a show because I'm never up on stage. But from speaking with artists, I think it's a huge thing. I mean, you went to a show, you experienced the difference in the atmosphere, the kind of energy of the room. I think artists are, they're particularly attuned to that. And when people's eyes are there and people are fully present, it makes a huge difference in the way the atmosphere of the show builds. And, and then it's a feedback loop between the artist, I think, and the fans. So when people are on their phone, it's, I think something you'll hear a lot is someone will say, well, I just want to pull out my phone for a moment and take a picture. And I put it away and I'm pretty conscientious about it, which that's totally fine. But there is a difference. I think it's kind of like when someone pulls out their phone to send a text or to take a picture in a way they're, they're saying, this for me is not enough. What's going on in this room, the people next to me, the conversation I'm in, I have to be somewhere else. And you kind of divest your display your attention and part of it goes there and it leaves the building. And when it comes back, everything's different. It's not the same as what was kind of building before. So to me, it's fundamentally different when people walk in the room and everyone understands the ground rules and everyone's there for the same reason. And I think the artist picks that up more than anything. And I think the other thing it facilitates for the artist is just creative freedom to be able to explore and try new things. And I think our society now desperately needs artists to feel free and uninhibited. And when their musical acts or anything are taken and recorded out of context and put on the internet, it has a way of giving them pause. You got it. And one of the things that I hear in my office is that the phone becomes a third party in any relationship. We've got the relationship and then we've got the phone and it can really inhibit conversation. I remember the first time I was talking to somebody while they were trying to text and feeling like, oh my gosh, are they really hearing me? And one of the things that we know about human nature is we want to be known, we want to be seen, we want to be heard, and we also don't want to miss out. So the person texting is seeing all events as being equally important, not recognizing that there's a human being right here right now. And that might be even more important in terms of discerning triage, like let's connect with the person in front of us, not the device. And yet the device is so alluring. One other memory before I ask the question, every time I hear the song Defying Gravity from the musical Wicked, I have this memory of having seen it live. And for those of you who haven't seen this musical, it's powerful. You see this triumphant moment where this, and if you're not crying, you might want to check yourself because it's a really emotional moment. And the dude in front of me is checking the football scores and I'll never forget how he took me out of my tears because I couldn't help notice him on his shiny thing, not recognizing that he was actually having an impact on my experience, which is in certain ways kind of funny at this point that I still remember that. But it really speaks, in my mind at least, to what was so present when I was at a concert without phones, without distractions. And it was just us and the artist and that the artist, they feel seen 
the audience, they feel like they got their money's worth. This is what we're going after in life. We're trying to have an experience. And that's a very long-winded way of saying the most important thing in life is having experiences. Yeah, or as Rollo Mayo might say, the experience of joy rather than uh, happiness that seems to be is a different thing, I guess. Yeah, the experience of intense joy. How would you define that? Oh, I don't know. I think you could look at it maybe as the experience of the full use and deployment of all your faculties at something like that. Yes. Yeah, but I think there's also another way to look at it in a concert setting, which is everyone being swept up into a shared mood. That's really why people go to shows is you, you go to experience something, but to be swept up into something broader where, you know, it's just like any good dinner party or something. Everyone's on the same wavelength. It takes some doing. It takes the music being right. It takes the artist being right. It takes the fans being in a, a certain attitude. Some shows are better than others for all those reasons, but it has to build in such a way. And when you introduce a phone or modern technology into those types of settings that are built around that type of feeling, it doesn't seem to work. They're built for a different purpose. The objective in those is much more in line with everything else in modern society, which is capitalist and is built around ultimately efficiency, which works for certain things, but I don't think it works for that setting. I totally agree. And Maya Angelou once said something that was later corroborated by functional MRIs, and that is people may forget what you said or did, but they'll remember how they felt when they were with you. And this is a big deal. You're offering people the opportunity to experience joy and to use your words, the deployment of all of your resources onto a thing and to be present. I'm thinking about like, what if we were enjoying the world's greatest meal, serious Michelin, like represented on some crazy food channel, and we were on our devices and or maybe even writing an email while eating? Would we really be present for either thing? And what are we doing if we're not really present for something that's awesome? I've even read a statistic that many people, particularly under the age of 25, have admitted, I believe it's somewhere around 10% or more to being on their phone and texting during sex. <laughs> and again, not here to bash the technology, here to say, let's be thoughtful about how we use it so that we can, to your point, deploy our resources to be in a thing. Yeah, or the full use of our faculties is how maybe a better way to put it. Yeah, I think it's part and parcel of just the idea of attention also. What is that? What's critical thinking? These other things. but. Those are things that have to be developed and experienced. I don't think they can be outsourced. As we're talking about this, there are some interesting studies that show that people who don't get enough sleep overestimate their abilities and underestimate the importance of sleep, and that people who drink and drive underestimate the impact of the alcohol and overestimate their driving skills, and people who multitask overestimate their abilities to be present. I see it all the time. I've got adolescents course that I'm listening. Yeah, but you're on your device. I'm not really sure you're listening. And you may think you're listening, but I can guarantee you that the research shows you're not listening as well as you think you are right now. That sounds about right. So what are some of the other applications of Yonder? We've talked about concerts. Where else is Yonder finding its way and helping put the genie back in the bottle? Well, <laughs> I know you said you couldn't put the genie back in the bottle, but at least temporarily relieving the genie of the work. In certain spaces, I would say. Uh, I mean, schools is the other big one for us. We're in all sorts of spaces. We're in courthouses and 
all sorts of different spaces. But schools is a huge thing for us. And we're in schools all over the country. We're in a lot of schools in Australia and Europe. So yeah, it's a really fascinating look into what's going on, I would say, with young people, the problems they're facing, the difficulties of being a young person now. Yeah, we have a team full of, you know, a lot of former educators and people we go into schools when we go help make a school phone free. It's a really interesting part of the world. And you're speaking about teens and how they might be saturated with information and maybe not enjoying their youth. So on some level, you're giving them an opportunity to be human again. Well, I think they just don't know anything different. They grew up in a world with the internet and a phone in their pocket and nobody to blame them. I think our goal is just to give them the experience of what it's like to go eight hours a day during school without their phone. I'm pretty confident I know what will happen when they do that. We hear it from parents. We hear that their kid comes home from school and the phone slowly starts to gravitate away from their person a little bit. The attachment becomes less acute. Social interaction, body posture, grades go up. There's less fights. All the things that are involved with part of it's social media, part of it's just the way you become wired. And that's well documented now. But I think a lot of the questions get framed around how do we present these ideas in the intellectual sphere to students or to people when really the attachment is much more physical, I think, at the end of the day. And it's about habits and patterns. And when you interrupt the impulse, that allows you to rewire a little bit and to change the way you inter interact with people. So if you're a student used to walking around and texting constantly, and that's your mode of communication, well, when that's not there, you know, you're kind of forced to develop in-person communication skills, which is not difficult. It just requires the absence of one to facilitate the growth of another. And I would say the same for spans of attention and stuff like that. As long as something very stimulating is in your face, well, that's the path of least resistance. And it's definitely human nature to take the path of least resistance. So it's difficult to ask people a hundred times a day to ignore the solicitations of your phone or your device. That takes conscious effort. How many times? The goal of social etiquette in any space should be to kind of establish the ground rules of the space. It's just that it's difficult for etiquette to keep up with the pace of technological development, I think. Simon Sinek describes... He's a great thought leader. For those of you not familiar with his TED Talk and his book, Start With Why and others, he describes when he goes out to dinner with his friends, he has a no phones rule and everyone must give up their phone and put it in a basket. And I think that's great. That's basically a tiny version of Yonder. And that being said, you were speaking to the addictive nature of phones and that we may actually not even realize we may be blind to some of our dependence on this apparatus. And I'm wondering, what are some of just now that you've been really delving into the space, seeing really how people respond to not having their device for a period of time? And you were talking about the ability to develop, to improve brain functioning and cognitive flexibility. What have been some of the blind spots that we might all have around the costs of having a phone and some of the benefits of giving the phone a break for a little piece of time? What are some things that many people might not even realize are the costs and benefits associated with having a phone versus putting the phone away for a period? Well, there's a lot in that question. So I think a lot of it's becoming there are kind of whistleblowers in the tech world who have come forward about the way apps and things are designed. And that's very much understood now. I remember back in 2012, 2010, reading white papers on app design and stuff like that. And it's pretty obvious to see the objective and the way they're built. But I don't think that's a new game. That's a tale as old as time, basically. 
in different businesses and different things, trying to sell stuff. In terms of the way people are wired, I think it's Marshall McLuhan had a really good book called Understanding Media, Media, the Extensions of Man. And his theory was that media becomes an externalization, basically, of the human central nervous system. Shiva sound really fascinating because if you look at somebody texting and if that's the way you interact with people or with the world eight, 10 hours a day, well, that's the way your brain kind of gets patterned. You know, you can almost see that a thought is not complete until it's been shared. So that's very different than the idea of uh, sustained attention or critical thinking, which requires you to hold a subject in front of your mind's eye for more than a moment and kind of peel back the layers. So I think that's the big one. And I see it. It's not just young people. I think that's a misconception. I think technology's influence on people of all ages is more or less the same. Adoption might be earlier by young people, but the effect's the same. And I think what I notice is people spend a lot of time on the internet firing off emails or messages. That kind of call and response uh, approach, that's what becomes patterned. And it's very fast. And I would say if you back out of it and you look at it, it's not usually that smart. It's just kind of reactive. The ball's just pinging. So that's the big one I see. And then it deadens all the soft observations that you get. The greater part of our maybe intelligence can give to us. The receptive part, I think, becomes kind of dead in this constant forward motion, kind of turning the conscious spotlight from one item to the next, constantly flitting around, you know? Totally. And I love what you just said. And I love the fact that you're informed by these truly great thinkers who were way ahead of their time. And the idea that, if I can paraphrase it, and if I understand it correctly, what McLaurin was suggesting was that we, our brain literally begins to be influenced and shape itself based upon the external stimulus that it, it's perceiving. His catchphrase was the medium is the message. And these great examples of that, the introduction of the phonetic alphabet and the way we look at the world in a linear way. I mean, these things that pattern our basic perception of the world, that's his idea of the medium is the message is that's what matters. And that's more or less how I view the internet too. It's not so much what's said on the internet, it's the medium itself. What does that do to the type of dialogue and exchange? So politically, anything you look at it, there's a precedence to apply it to. I mean, that's how I see it. Mm, love it. And just a little bit about you. What is your background and how did your background itself perhaps cause you to create Yonder? I'm not sure really, honestly. I think I'm, like I told you, I was a soccer player growing up and all through college. So that was that. I didn't focus a ton on my studies in college. So I think most of what I've learned after the fact, just by following my interests, but I was lucky to grow up in Oregon. It's a great place to live. Spent a lot of time outside hiking and camping. I think that's probably in there somewhere. I don't know. I think I've always been just a little bit skeptical that of the idea of progress in a broad terms and the idea that you get something for nothing, that there's no cost to new things. So I think that's always a perspective. But yeah, I think otherwise it was just going down a rabbit hole of these different people and observing modern, what's going on in modern life. And, and also the sense I get from a lot of people that they're running faster to stay in the same place and that the more things we get and the more connectivity and the more inputs that somehow it's, it's hollowing out the meaning in life and that the, the real task maybe of our generation is the battle against nihilism and what's the antidote to that. Those are things that have always interested me and you can read about them, but you can also just observe them in day-to-day -day life and see what works and doesn't. 
Let's talk about that for a second. I mean, you just dropped a big one, the battle against nihilism. And in a time when so many people are quite understandably cynical, what might be, and this is a big question for you, Graham, but what might be from where you sit and what you've read and what you've experienced, something that might help foster another perspective besides a nihilistic one? Well, I think that Albert Boardman, to me, had put his finger on it the best. Again, he's a philosopher of technology in Montana. And he talks a lot about focal practices and focal things and kind of bring people together and are not influenced by the idea of technological efficiency, really, which I, I think is a fascinating concept. And he is a great example of it, of applying the difference between being in a room, let's say a cabin, and you, you turn on the thermostat for heat and the gadgetry and everything is hidden from you and you get heat. And juxtaposes that with going out and chopping firewood, going in and building the fire, everyone gathering around the hearth. And these things that are built on a social context and structure that goes back into, they have depth to them. And I think another thing that I've talked about with him, and I think is a great point, is just that the things that are best for us as people are also the most profoundly enjoyable. And it's different than stimulation or titillation. It's something much more foundational. So he points to these focal practices, things that are bound up in the doing of them, the cooking, biking, hiking, skiing, cooking. These kind of activities are things that ground and center our lives. So I think that's pretty important one. And in a way, I think shows are an element of that too, because there's an appreciation of the art, there's community, there's a sense of being there for the same purpose. So I think there's some similarities. And for sure, one of the things that I've heard consistently throughout this north of 100 episodes of podcasts in my studies of psychology is that the things that humans want more than anything is connection. And you're removing an obstacle to connection and providing greater connection with Yonder. Well, my final question then, if Yonder was to, in the next several years, make a big difference in people's lives, what do you hope that difference is? Oh, I think it's just to get people the chance to reflect on their relationship with technology and how they choose to live in the world. That's it. I think the pace of modern life has its own rhythm. It's very fast and it's not working great for a lot of people. And I think that if people can go experience a show or, or kids can go to school and not have their phones for a while, it gives them a chance as they get older to decide for themselves what their relationship ought to be. Nobody has the answer. I think our goal is just to provide an opportunity for people to evaluate for themselves. That's our goal. And I think we've already done a lot of that and we plan to do a lot more going forward. Love that. So in addition to be here now, it would also be to offer another perspective in the face of our current technological reality. There is this and that. I think so. Yeah. Mm, beautiful. Well, Graham, I'm stoked to meet you and I wish you and your company all the best. I believe that you're doing something really important and just can't thank you enough. Well, thanks for having me, Adam. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Right on, man. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe. Subscribe. 